Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Tom Keneally is the winner of the 2022 ARA Historical Novel Prize in the adult category for his novel, Corporal Hitler's Pistol. Tom Keneally, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Uh, there we are. There is the whole biological catastrophe of Keneally. <laughs> Wonderful. Firstly, I've got to congratulate you on winning the ARA Historical Novel Prize for 2022 for the book we're about to talk about, Corporal Hitler's Pistol. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and congratulations on winning that prize. Let's talk about the novel and the place where it's set, which is Kempsey. And as a distinguished writer of historical fiction, among other things, covering everything from epic adventure and vast swathes of Australian history, what has brought you back to the small town of Kempsey and its inhabitants? Well, both my father and mother grew up there. And I grew up on stories of chicken wicks. The term gay wasn't used. More offensive words were used uh, by my Bush dad. There are two boys mentioned in the book called The Quinlans. And Chicken, the cinema pianist, who is an accomplished artist, he thinks they're rough trade, but he kind of likes them too. And uh, those rough trade boys were the Keneally boys from East Kempsey, whose father owned a store called the Harp of Erin Store. He came from Ireland, and the harp is the symbol of Ireland. And uh, uh, that store still stands in East Kempsey. And so my father learnt how to hypnotise chickens off this gay pianist. The gay pianist's father was a sleeper cutter. Gee, you've got to be old to have seen this, but I've seen a sleeper cutter set out with just an axe and a piece of string, a sort of plumb line. To be able to cut a rectangular sleeper uh, suitable for use on the railways, uh, it was a terribly skilled job, and yet, like novelists, they earn nothing. <laughs> and chicken weeks have grown up as a, a sleeper cutter's son, and he used to hypnotize chickens for his mother. They were never revived except in the form of a stew, perhaps. He taught my father in slack hours at the Victoria Cinema how to hypnotize chickens. And my father then, as an RAF man in World War II, hypnotized chickens from Tunisia right up into Syria to amaze the locals. If he was ever embarrassed or wanted to show off or the native peoples of those areas were doubtful about him, he'd just hypnotise one of their scrawny chickens. And boy, he was in. <laughs> and so the idea of a gay pianist in 1933, under threat from the movies with their own soundtrack, Therefore, a man with redundancy hanging over him. And then my mother, who knew Chicken, everyone knew Chicken. I met Chicken when I was a kid. 
he used to come into my aunt's frock shop at the Paris end of Smith Street, Dempsey, to see the latest fashions from Sydney. Not that he wore them, he just loved women's fashions. And it's interesting, so do I. I buy most of my wife's clothing. <laughs> I don't think I'm dictatorial about wearing it. I don't think there's anything sinister in it, except that I may be a cross-dresser who's grown a beard to prevent myself going the full way. But um, uh, I love, uh, I dress like a bum myself, but I love women's clothing. And so did Chicken. And then my mother, who was a shop girl in Barsby store in Clemson, uh, said that she used to sell chicken makeup. And my old man said, well, it wasn't for himself, you know. He, he used to make up the Abbo Sheilas. And I said, the Aboriginal women would come to him to be made up. I mean, this is too good to be true. It's, it's like they're writing a novel. And he said, yeah, if, if an Aboriginal woman was going to a wedding and going to Sydney on the Sydney Mail, that well-known expressive romance, she'd come to Chicken and be made up. And, of course, there we have immediately scenes of Chicken making up amiable Aboriginal women, the tribe of Kempsey were the Thungudi from whom a great footballer, Greg Inglis, derived. And they lived gloriously in the past in this very benign valley, which was full of fat Joannas and the river full of uh, fish. And uh, when I was born there in 35, two years after the book is set, I know now, and saw with the intensity of childhood, the Thungudi people going past our gate in River Street carried visible signs of ill health, like ringworm, shaven scalps, uh, unattended to tooth absences. And so um, they were in a nadir then. There was no sense that these were the owners of a Australia. Although I've discussed with Aboriginals the fact that an Australian, when pissed, would say to the kids, you know, this all belongs to the Abos, you know, it all belongs to the, to the Thungudi. It's their place. Just occasionally, truth would break through. That uh, tension is still there in that valley, of course. And, uh, you know, because Aboriginals couldn't go to pubs then, couldn't be out after six in their own bloody country by police enforcement. I knew of a man in Kempsey who sold rosehip spirits and methylated spirits in the Aboriginal camp. I don't know if he took advantage of black women by selling this stuff. What happened, therefore, when one of the country gentry, the accountant's wife or the builder's wife, goes to town and she encounters a half-caste kid and he's bearing her husband's features. He's got mannerisms that are infallibly, and that happens in the book. So what does she do that's dangerous to the patriarchy in 1933? That's one of the hinges of the plot. 
And one thing she does ultimately, which outrages the whole town, she goes to chicken to get made up. Only Aboriginal women go to chicken. And she deliberately goes to chicken as a reproach against her husband. Then there's the question of the war. And my uncle was in the AIF and I have all his letters here. Uh, but he had a friend from the 53rd Australian Battalion of whom it was said that he had taken Hitler prisoner on the night of the 19th of July, 1916. And there was an old farmer, therefore, when kids told me, who had Hitler's pistol. And he lived at Polo Flats, out, out beyond the swamp on the way to Southwest Rocks. And you couldn't ask him about it because he'd shoot you. And so it was a self-protecting myth. No one can check it out. <laughs> and, but it's quite possible. I looked it up. The 53rd Battalion had boys from the Maclay and had some German Australians in it. They charged Hitler's lines, the 16th Bavarian Reserve Division. So there were Australians who survived the slaughter, got to the Germans' lines, captured Germans, stray Germans left over from the German retreat. Overnight, a huge fog came down. By morning, it was pea soup. The Germans came back into their lines and took the Australians prisoner. But some of the Germans who had such a cosy time with the Aussies, who were novice soldiers, had never been in battle before in France, that the Germans showed them back in the pea soup fog, showed them the sap to follow to get back to the Australian lines from no man's land. And that, that happens to a Kempsey boy in this novel. It's interesting, though, the way you portray Hitler in this dugout. Hitler is portrayed as human, not, not the man we've come to know. Why have you cast Hitler in this way? I'll tell you precisely why. I, this is a case in which I actually had a motive rather than a sensibility. I am always amazed what we're capable of. I've seen terrible things in Eritrea done to the Eritrean population by ordinary, non-psychotic Ethiopian boys and vice versa. The Holocaust, for example, and the whole Nazi regime was not done by psychopaths. It was done, it was maintained, its atrocities were committed by mother's sons who'd just been told a load of crap about World War One and about the international Jewish conspiracy. And so I wanted to depict Hitler as a human in 1916 because his friends in the 16th Reserve Bavarian Battalion thought he was and were quite affectionate towards him, but also to show that the greatest crimes are committed by the sane. Can't blame everything on the insane. There are atrocities committed by the insane, but the biggest atrocities, like the Ukrainian famine, like the Ukrainian invasion at the moment, are committed by boys whom their mothers loved and who were not a danger to their society when they were young men and who suddenly become a danger 
to other members of the human race because they've been rendered into a, a sort of psychosis of indoctrination. And and that, then there's the, the fourth strand, if I might. I know you're going to ask about the fourth strand, young Dobbs. Of course, of course. And I presume you're talking about the Irish Civil War. Which had a big impact on Irish halves in Australia. And my God, there were a lot of Irish up in Kempsey and a lot of Bavarians. The, the, the um, uh, Irish and the Bavarians intermarried because they're all Catholic. But... Um, and, of course, at that stage, the Irish were an underclass. So even to Flo, who's an amiable woman and who sees the features of a husband and a half-house boy, she's a heroine in this book. And even to her, the Irish are a class beneath themselves. But she starts to mix with them, too. She uh, starts to be kind to a man called Breslin. Be kind to is not code for have sex with. Uh, big uh, genuine kindness to it. Again, there's very little that doesn't come from the family in this book. It's family mythology writ large. And one of the strongest strands of mythology in our family was about that Irish Civil War, when the Irish did dreadful things to each other. The Irish Free State, a particular general, came up with the idea of executing rebels, people who opposed the Irish Free State, and the Irish Free State accepted that Ulster was out. It was off the table. The IRA said, no, it'll never be off the table. And so men who fought as rebels were numerous in our family, but we also had a brigadier general in the Free State Army. So every village has a line through every bed, through every living room, through every clan and through every village and it wasn't forgotten until a whole generation died and in some quarters it's not forgotten in Ireland still the the two parties Fine Gael were free state and Fine Foil existed to unite Ireland but in practice it was impossible to do that by constitutional means my grandfather who was a train driver, was actually, uh, he was on the side of the rebels. And my God, could he make speeches? And he is the Breslin in the book, Breslin. But the Irish are minor characters in the book. I, I wanted to build up the idea of the town aristocracy. And my Aunt Annie said, no one, the, 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 the bloody Habsburg, she said. She had a uh, an aristocratic delivery, Aunt huh, Danny, on the basis of a distinguished Irish family of knuckle draggers. The Habsburg didn't fancy themselves as much as some of the Kempsey people. And it's the truth. <laughs> it was the truth then. And, and and so you got the an IRA man who was tricked into betraying his own people, which happened a lot is being pursued in this book. Now, Sebastian Barry, uh, the great Irish novelist, tells me that his uncle was killed in an art gallery in either Cincinnati or Cleveland, some city in Ohio, on a Sunday morning. He had been in the Free State Army and he'd been in the British Army before that. 
and he was considered to be responsible for some war atrocities. And he was looking at paintings when an IRA man, years after the war, caught up with him in Cincinnati and plugs him. And it's for this fraternal sacrifice that's going on uh, all over the world that Hitler's pistol reawakes an apparition of itself in the hands of a gay boy in the town. And he carries it to chicken and all hell breaks loose. It is used in a murder, not by chicken, but of course, as soon as a murder occurs, chicken is arrested because the tolerance of chicken as the town's favorite was only a skin deep tolerance. And what motivated you to write about this? I was motivated uh, to write about this because I was raised with all the prejudices against gays that were normal, not by my mother or anything. They were just in the male society. They were very male prejudices. I think of poor old chicken and 1935, like the Aboriginals, he's got decades to go before he gets a whiff of genuine recognition, a whiff of reconciliation with his own community. And uh, uh, I, I felt very motivated by that death of the young American up there, whose brother made up the algorithm for digital pictures. And he had enough money to pursue his brother's death, which had been human sacrifice. But all these cases in the 70s were ruled suicide or harm by persons unknown. And the police didn't have a lot of motivation in chasing down the persons unknown. And he's now proved that his brother was a human sacrifice. And so I was very moved by, by that fact, uh, by the fact of being close to that beautiful place it's a postcard, you know, except that it's Mount Golgotha for gays. Through all this, you maintain an empathetic or even optimistic tone through the tragedy. How do you maintain that tone when all of this is going on? Yes, it's our difficult working towards, look, I, I've only got simple ideas. People think, uh, novelists have sophisticated ideas and they ask them complicated questions for their opinion on complicated questions. And I was always dumb enough to give mine. But uh, the, the idea is this. I think, as Harari says in Sapiens, a great book, pop science, I suppose you'd call it, but he says what I know to be true, that we have an imagination that stretches to about 150 people who are related to us through work, through sport, through cultural organizations, and by being related to us by blood. Those are very hard ones to escape, mad as they might be. <laughs> Dictators know this. Political manipulators know this. John Howard knew that we wouldn't feel too much worry about 150 refugees because they weren't like us. Oh, and by the way, they'd throw their kids in the water, which you wouldn't do. 
so they are people of erratic and out of control and you know the way they've chucked the kids in the water they're going to put a bomb in your rsl club um uh, we find it easier to deal with the misuse of millions in another country than to deal with the misuse of 150 people we know. We will stand up for our clan more than we stand up for anyone else. In any case, um, that fascinates me. As a species, we're about a couple of hundred thousand years old, and we all come from the one African woman. Every woman in the world has the mitochondria of this African woman in her DNA. Think of that. So everyone, every woman on earth, including the ones we rape and kill in history, has the same DNA as our mother, as sacred figures. There are people of grace who can get very upset for other people who aren't related to them. And this is a great gift to be engaged. I know many people who have fought for refugees and not treating them as criminals and not locking them up and not forcing mental illness upon them and their children. But most of us are captive to our clan. In humans, there's this tug between all being the one family, which is destroyed by politics, you know, a lot of young people who now think the Russians are out of the family, but they're not. Even Putin is our brother. And there's a little Putin in you, by the way, too. I hope not, but you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't mean you personally. <laughs> so I want, I, I'm torn between those two myself. But that's the tension that's in this book, too. The Aboriginals and the whites aren't brothers. The Irish and the Prods aren't brothers. It is a, a valley divided. And it still is a valley divided, though it's the Arabs now. You've got to watch out for them, mate. And uh, it, it's any one Muslim that's moved up there into the Maclay Valley. Someone will write a great novel about being a Muslim in Kempsey. <laughs> Let's talk about historical fiction more generally. What is historical fiction but the retelling of history from a new or different perspective? A more subjective use of history, if you like. Yes, it can. That's a good way to put it, a subjective use of history. You're really writing about your own world. The past is another country, but from it, you can read your country. One of the reasons that historic fiction will always be popular is that in the past, we can see patterns of where we are. I feel that if you look back, at 1933, you can see the emerging Australia of now in the repression of sexuality and the repression of homosexuality, for that matter, in the repression of the Aboriginals. In all that, you can read the modern Australia because the young don't know where we've come from. So it's wonderful for them to find out where we've come from, uh, from an Australian where the Aboriginals had to be out of town by nightfall, from the dog permit area of life, where each Aboriginal had to have 
his pass and be asked for his pass when he came to town. This in his own country, asked by an interloper in the form of a policeman for his pass. And uh, where the people sat in the front of the cinema and where we were still so British that we sang God Save the Queen. Although my grandfather, there's a Blake in there, he never stands up. <laughs> and that's my maternal grandfather. <laughs> stand up, Pop. We used to stand up. Please stand up, Papa. No. <laughs> he would, he would if he came to Sydney because he wasn't a people didn't know him. He could stand up then and pretend to be an Englishman. <laughs> in Campsie, never. <laughs> That really does lead me to my final question, which is very closely related to what you've talked about. This book, you said, is inadvertently a family history. It wasn't intended as a historical fiction, but it turned out that way because each of us has a history and writing about our family is historical fiction. And it seems to me that this book is a lifetime of accumulated knowledge rather than research. Most historical fiction is researched, but yours seems to be lived rather than researched. Yes, I, I that is true. I know that era of Kempsey so well through my parents because they never stopped talking about it. They never stopped talking about how the children of the Irish were suspect because they were children of Irish people. My grandfathers never stopped talking about the Troubles and then about the Civil War which really gutted them because it gutted Ireland. The IRA certainly let the good be the enemy of the perfect, uh, but they put their lives on the line and they're still putting their lives on the line even in 1930s Australia. Uh, and um, it, when it's dangerous to be too forthright about where you come from and who your relatives are and so on, because there's still conflict between families um, based on what happened in Ireland in 1922-23. And uh, there's still the trauma of World War I. Our diggers were treated very badly because trauma wasn't understood at that period of history. But um, Mr. Weber who is also one of the aristocracy of the town, a big land owner. He is the one who in the cinema on a Saturday night sees on a newsreel Hitler becoming chancellor and begins to scream. What's all that about? The book is the answer to what all that is about. When I became, my parents became pregnant with me, Mussolini the Italian fascist leader intended to invade from Eritrea, a country then known as Abyssinia. I wonder if the 25-year-olds can uh, remember and know what that country was. Abyssinia is Ethiopia. And he did, by the time I was born, he'd invaded. So the past is simply the present in different underpants. Tom Keneally, it's been a great pleasure talking to you and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. I've been talking to Tom Keneally about his new book, Corporate Hitler's Pistol. 
the winner of the ARA Historical Novel Prize in the adult category for 2022. It's published by Penguin Random House, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.